welcome to the Uncuddled Podcast User's Guide. Episodes run approximately 45 minutes and are best enjoyed during attentive listening. Each show will begin with samples associated with the theme of the program in order to add context to the discussions that follow. Episodes will be based on subjects relating to music or culture and their impact upon the life of the creator of the series. If at any time during the podcast, you experience nausea, pain, or discomfort, please discontinue further use and immediately consult a musician. Thank you and enjoy the shows. Let's discuss the origins of this podcast. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Bring it home. But unmindful of clock or calendar, the Vietnam struggle goes on. Six days of rioting left behind scenes reminiscent of war-torn cities. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. Reports tonight on the violent climax of yesterday's Arab terrorism at the Olympics. Today, one observer gave them a new name, the Bloody Olympics. Neither the president or anybody in the White House or anybody in authority have any responsibility for it. The event is so momentous that historians may one day view it as a landmark in the decline of the British Empire. The Beatles are breaking up. This is the Untitled Podcast. Untitled? It's an Untitled Podcast. Okay. And that's in reference to the fourth Led Zeppelin album, which technically is untitled. Also, the movie Almost Famous, which is near and dear to my heart. And the better version of that movie is called Untitled. Exactly. See, this is why I invited you in. (laughs) You get it. The first episode would really be about why am I doing the podcast, my earliest memories of music, and then the occasional flash forward to something relating now that goes back to that. I've brought my friend Paul in, and Paul, if you could give us just a quick uh, overview of who you are and what you do and why music's important to you and what, you know, we can expect uh, to hear from your Ed McMahon type <laughs> input. <laughs> I've loved music since basically for as long as I can remember. I grew up listening to music. Uh, my father was really into uh, a lot of the old classic rock. Of course, at that time, it wasn't exactly classic rock. It was just rock. So I grew up listening to um, the Stones and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, and basically a, a lot of that type of music and just took it from there. And then I discovered heavy metal when uh, I guess I was about nine or ten and then just exploded in that direction. Do you have any older brothers or sisters? Yeah, and, uh, an older brother and older sister. And they, they were also into music. My brother and I really got, got into music together. And actually, we used to uh, pool our paper out money together and buy a record every week. You know, so that's how, yeah. we built, that's how we built up our record collection. Yeah, that's awesome. So he would turn you on to things, too, that like yes, maybe actually. you wouldn't have heard? Yeah, uh, my brother's the, uh, he's the one who turned me on to Metallica. Oh, okay. He bought uh, Master of Puppets when it was new, right. when, it, when it came out. And he showed up, I had never even heard of Metallica. He showed up with Riding the Lightning and Master of Puppets. And that just changed my life. Yes. But what were like your earliest memories of music that you can think of? The first thing that really grabbed me, and I was probably six or seven years old, was Janis Joplin. 
Her voice blew me away when I was too young to even understand what a voice she had. Right. There, there, was, there was something about that voice that I just that just mesmerized me. But I was too young to even put it together. What is it that I'm getting out of this in the end? And, and I found that a lot of times when I was putting this together, there would be connections made. Something that happened that was very, very minor when I was a kid shows up and traces all the way through my life or leads to something else. Mm -hmm. So I've created samples of some of these examples. I want to play you something that I think is interesting that connects several eras of my life is so seemingly insignificant. So the first one is when I was very, very little, my pseudo-religious Italian grandmother, mm -hmm. she would tell me Bible stories and stuff. And, and I'm not saying this is the exact clip or anything, but and the reason I remember is because she couldn't really pronounce the names, and I still can't. Three young Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, worked for King Nebuchadnezzar. But when the king wanted them to bow down and worship a golden idol he made, they wouldn't do it. The names are the important part here. Right, right. The characters, right? That is when I'm, I don't even know how old I was, you know. Yeah. I just barely, vaguely remember it. I, you know, I don't even know if I got the exact time frame. But that's sort of the beginning. The second thing is that uh, my grandparents would always have Grand Ole Opry and stuff on. Right. And one of the things was this clip of Johnny Cash from about 1971. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the wicked kings they stood. And oh, the king wow. commanded them bound and thrown into the fiery furnace that day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, so now jump forward in high school. I'm starting to like intentionally dig deep. I had a Rolling Stone record guide. And anything I saw in there with five stars, I wanted to hear. Right. So one artist that popped up a lot was Sly and the Family Stone. Somebody had their greatest hits, which I really liked. Mm -hmm. But I ended up hearing this song. Very cool. Yeah, so so there's that, right? Mm -hmm. Does that um, ring any bells for you at all yet? Because this song came out in 1989. <laughs> Those names just keep popping up. Exactly. The Sly Stone album comes out uh, Mid-70s, I don't get it until like probably early 80s, right? Then the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, the, the classic Beastie Boys album comes out. Mm. It has this on it, which I recognized and liked. I, I liked the sampling when it was done good. Right, yeah. And then jump forward, and, I don't know, another few decades or whatever. I'm going to New Orleans, and then when you talk about New Orleans music, you talk about Louis Armstrong. Right, Satchmo, yeah. right? So I get this uh, compilation, and this song's on there. 
was three children from the land of Israel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Took a trip to the land of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. So this same biblical story is popping up all over. Well, well, not so much the stories popping up, but the names are popping up. Exactly. Yeah, because, you know, uh, obviously the Beastie Boys aren't trying to tell us anything religious or philosophical. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I just thought those kinds of threads are interesting. And, And, you know, I'm doing this... You know, obviously for myself, just to get, you know, thoughts out and do something fun, but also, like, you know, maybe one day mm-hmm. kids, grandkids might be interested. And I know that as a fan of music, I love to hear what people's feelings and thoughts were on something, especially if it was like, uh, you know, something like The Beatles on Ed Sullivan, which right. I can't experience. Right, yeah. I can go and watch it, but I don't know what it was like in those time frames right. when that was a huge shock well that, well that was a a monumental shift that was a sea change right in in music and the only time that in my lifetime that i ever experienced a sea change that large was probably when nirvana came out. exactly and there hasn't been one since I really wanted to show how these threads connect, and so a lot of these podcasts are going to connect this way, too. If you were to listen to this podcast and listen to each successive podcast, even if you don't necessarily like the band, there's going to be things that connect, and they all go back this to this and to these kinds of events through my life, and I, I think it's really interesting, and I wouldn't have thought about it except for when I was putting together this podcast. I was born in 66. Okay. By the time I'm starting to have my earliest memories, I'm like three, four years old. And I come from West Virginia, Beckley, West Virginia. And my relatives, coal miners, truck drivers, Mm -hmm. you know, um, my grandmother was a first generation Italian immigrant. You know, all this stuff. So it's real working class. Right. And they're very conservative. Almost everything they listened to was country music. Even if it's good country music by your standards now as an adult, it's horrifying then. It's just like, oh my God, what is wrong with these people? Why are they, you know, what is the appeal of this stuff? And growing up with it, do you appreciate it more now? I do now. And that's kind of what the podcast is about. Right. How did that happen? I don't like what poses as country music now. Well, yeah, now, now it's it's like this syrupy, rockish... It's almost like hair metal with a twang, you know? Like it's... <laughs> Yes. You know? Yeah, that, that pretty much I mean, it up. Garth Brooks, I think, destroyed country music. Because yeah. he shows up on the scene, he's smashing guitars. Right. He's doing the big giant, he's doing covers of Kiss songs. He's doing everything but country music. Well, he made country pop. Right. Yeah. I really appreciate Johnny Cash, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly, you know, Willie Nelson and, and these older acts. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I didn't get it. Also, you know, a lot of that stuff you were listening to was mixed in with garbage right know? yeah harper valley pta and stuff like that that doesn't mean anything now yeah. but you know early early dolly pardon and stuff that mm. has some resonance you know right my dad just out of curiosity says when and why did you start liking it and i was thinking you know about the time it's you know it's college you know i'm getting into rem they have a little country you know thing there's also like the uh, paisley underground movement in college in the mm-hmm. 80s where 
bands were starting to kind of have a little bit of like the Birds era, Psychedelia, right. and a little bit of the Graham Parsons, and so that was kind of evolving. But I think the main thing is you will never get country music until you had your heart broken. If you haven't felt that pain, I don't think you could ever get George Jones. I can hardly bear the sight of lipstick on the cigarettes there in the ashtray. Lying cold the way you left them, but at least your lips caressed them while you packed. print on a half-filled cup of coffee that you poured and didn't drink but at least you thought you wanted it and that's so much more than i can say for me it's been a it really starts this music in the background that i had to tolerate three channels on tv if you were lucky and so uh, I was listening to basically whatever my parents and grandparents were listening to. And they'd right. have on Hee Haw. <laughs> yeah. And they'd have on, you know, the Grand Old Opry. Right. They would have on, like, gospel, like country gospel, not like good gospel that I really liked. Yeah. Know? It was country music, orchestrations, artists that I really like now, but at the time... For the county. Later on, you'd kind of get the emotional part of it. Right. When you're four or five, you know, reading comic books sitting on the floor in the corner while this is playing in the background, it's seeping in, even though you don't realize it. Oh, yeah. Later on, those songs would, would actually kind of mean something to me. The other thing I found interesting when I was doing this is that a lot of these songs had like some pretty brutal dark lyrics the country songs in particular right yeah well that, that's uh, at least with old country music that was always the case yeah you know it's like the old joke when you play a country song backwards you get the house back the car back yes. your dog back lord you should have seen their frantic faces they screamed and cried please put away that night I guess I'll go to hell or I'll rot here in this cell. But who taught who? Yeah, that's pretty dark stuff. He he comes home and catches his wife with another man and then stabs them to death. Then is reflecting in his cell and he's like, I taught them the cold hard facts of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's Porter Wagner. That wasn't an unusual thing, you know? Right, yeah. And then you would have this all over the radio, and I kind of learned to spell from some of these songs. Right. And quite a little man. So we spell out the words we don't want him to understand. Our D I V O R C E becomes final today. One thing I always loved about uh, old country music is I love those harmonies. Yes. And if that's the way it's done, I don't want to play faster. It makes my mommy cry. 
Yeah, there's a certain something in, in, in the country music voice. My daddy said goodbye. She would sing these songs and you would feel it. Like you could tell in her voice. At least selling the song really well, at the very least. Oh, yeah. I want a divorce. Now, where did she hear that? Kids. Very cool. Yeah, so um, a lot of Elvis. Um, and Elvis wasn't dead yet. Right, yeah. You know? But he was transitioning into the fat Elvis. Maybe I didn't treat you. I can really hear what he's saying in the songs, and it means something, you know? Right, yeah. But at the time, again, it's kind of in the background, mm -hmm. and you may like it, but you weren't paying that much attention to it. I like that, I like that whole progression right there. That I don't even know if I've ever heard this song, but I like that. So you, you don't know that you've heard Always On My Mind? Really? Wait, that, is that what this is? Yeah. That was his song? Yeah. He didn't write it, but he was the first to perform it. It was written. So that was so that wasn't a Willie Nelson song. It, Willie took it five, six years later, whatever it was that he did. Yeah, I, I well, I didn't hear the chorus, and I knew it sounded familiar. And Willie's version is beautiful, and wonderful, but so is this original version. Especially when you think about the fact that when this song came out, he was going through his divorce with Priscilla and stuff. Right. Yeah. You know, he had that in his head when he was singing it. Yeah. You know, and that obviously makes a big difference. Some of these Elvis songs were hits at the time. Mm. Like I said, he was alive, which is really hard for people to grasp. You were alive when Elvis was alive? You know? <laughs> <laughs> now, Elvis died, you know, in 77, so I was mm. like 11. Right. And he hadn't, at this point, turned into this really sad, heavy Elvis character, but he was totally Las Vegas. There was nothing really cool about him anymore. And then if you go back and read about his history and what was going on back then, mm -hmm. he was just way out of reality. Well, yeah, he I mean, he was grossly overweight and he was popping pills and, you know, he, he was just in, in bad shape. What's cool about these songs was that, you know, at the time I didn't think much of them. When I got to college, Fine Young Cannibals did a cover of this song in the 80s. Because I love you too much, baby. Can't you see what you're doing to me when you don't believe a word I say? We can't go on together with suspicious Cool baseline in there. That's a great version. Yeah. It's very respectful. And it made me kind of go back to the original and be like, yeah, Elvis was kind of in a hokey period, but that's a cool song. This wasn't my music. I wasn't picking it. Mm -hmm. I didn't have much control of the radio. So um, what I was listening to was Saturday morning cartoons. 
Mm-hmm. The creators were like high when they made these cartoons. Oh, yeah, they all were. I mean, that's some like psychedelic stuff, you yeah. know? So anyway, my kids know who H.R. Puff and stuff is. Right. And they're like, man, Dad, you know, <laughs> especially my oldest daughter, looking back on that. And now sometimes she'll like put on YouTube and show her friends, you know? <laughs> Some of those cartoons actually had real artists behind them. I love really the song. Good. This yeah. song's one of the greatest songs ever. This is probably one of my favorite bass lines. The Wrecking Crew, who did all that early Motown stuff, yeah. uh, they might get their own podcast, you know, before I'm all done with this, because it's it's fantastic. And then, of course, you know, they were they were the imi- you know imitators after that, right? And they were you know the Osmonds and the Partridge Family and all that stuff, and and then like I said, you would have the Sonny and Cher show, right? And they would do these songs, and then like. Later on, when you would go and hear the actual song, you would be like, "God, they slaughtered that song! What? How in the how in God's name did they think that was the same song or that was the way to do that song?" Right. You yeah. Know? So as a palate cleanser, I'm kind of putting in this Temptations track right here, and I'm going to do a whole podcast episode on the Temptations because I love that band, and I I I mean they. Uh, are my favorite Motown band, even over Jackson 5. See, I like The Temptations, but I never really gave them close scrutiny. Well, there's a movie about The Temptations, which right. I'll also greatly reference when I do the podcast. Mm. you got to see that. First of all, when you're watching it, it's an incredible, compelling story. And also, you know, you really see you know, what they dealt with and what they did and how creative they were and how they came to be. But also, you're like, song after song after song, it's just so awesome. Yeah. And to me... Every one of their songs got better and better as far as the hits. Right, yeah. You know, um, it, you start off with My Girl and stuff, and that's all sweet and nice and everything. But then by the time you get to, like, Papa Was a Rolling Stone, oh, yeah. then it's on, man. I mean, that's that's the deal. Yeah. And I love that. I, I, I like this whole this whole project because you're actually analyzing why you like certain music and, yeah. and for for me I mean I, I like such a wide variety of music yeah. now it's not an unusual day right. when I'm listening to like old classic rock then Slayer then they might be giants yeah uh, and they're completely different types of music and the only thing that they have in common is that I like them Maybe it was Ed Sullivan. I don't know if that went off before I got in the era, but that kind of show where they would have like juggling and dog acts and and anything, you know, that was just. Was, then you had people popping up who had variety shows, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you remember all that. Everybody had a show, and and they were terrible, yeah. you know. And occasionally you'd get something weird like a David Bowie showing up on the show as a guest. Right. Or in my case, which I'll talk about later, Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. Something totally off the chart and weird. And that was what, that was almost like when the Beatles went on Ed Sullivan. Right. For, for that previous generation. I, I love to talk to my mom and other people about what that was like. Right. With me, I'd be watching like the Sonny and Cher show. Right. You didn't have a whole lot of options. And it's all crap, you know? It, it, it is. Everybody was lip syncing then, yeah. And I remember being really excited that Ozzy Osbourne was going to be on Solid. Oh band. yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, that was a big deal. To yeah. Me. And they didn't even have the whole band. It was Ozzy and the guitarist coming out, and Ozzy's lip syncing. Yeah, yeah. Well, wow, this is awful. Uh huh. They would be holding a microphone, and there's no band in sight. Yeah. I just think a lot of people just don't think about that. Oh, I 
I remember flash memory of me being in the car with my mom, maybe in the back seat, mm -hmm. and the car's completely quiet except for this eight track playing. Right. You know, my mom is probably smoking in the car. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're driving on some highway or back road or something at night, it being real quiet. And then my mom had eight tracks and you know, eight tracks they would just, you'd put them in, and sometimes people would leave them in for weeks. And so this music would be playing, and it would loop over and over again. Right, yeah. And so some of that I came to despise and never ever want to hear again. But some of this, later on, I was like, man, I love Percy Sledge. He's my favorite soul artist of all time. He wasn't flashy, he wasn't like really good looking or anything. He doesn't get the respect and the kudos that a lot of these guys get right but he's hugely influential so like if you go and you listen to old Percy Sledge and you hear the um, the arrangements of songs the general sound mm -hmm. and especially the horns and then you go back and listen to like sticky fingers right or any stones era from you know that mm -hmm. time frame that Mick Taylor 70 stones yeah and they would go to that studio and they would get those horn players. You're a big rock star. You'd go to New York City or London or L.A. and record. They go to Muscle Shoals, and Muscle Shoals is not much to look at. Yeah, it's not a big fancy place, but they got the sound. And so when the Stones went there, and if they, you know, if you go back and you listen to "I Got the Blues" by the Rolling Stones, mm -hmm. those horns are in there. Right. You know. And it's not, they didn't steal the, the, the licks and stuff, but that sound is authentic. Who are those studio musicians at Muscle Shoals? Uh, the Swampers. Yes. And there's a whole documentary on the whole Muscle Shoals. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. And the thing I always liked was that these guys typically were just doing what they thought they had to do. They didn't realize how revolutionary at the time it was. Right, yeah. And who would have thought? Mm -hmm. You know, Muscle Shoals, Alabama? Nothing fancy about this building or studio at all, but somehow... Mm -hmm. There was magic in there. Yeah. And it got repeated, you know, through the Stones. Yeah. Uh, I believe uh, Skinner recorded there, Leonard Skinner. Well, yeah, they, they even gave the Swampers a shout-out in Sweet Home uh, Alabama. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Again, these things when you're little, mm -hmm. because I'm listening to Percy Sledge, it's burned in my brain. But I didn't get to that Stones era for another several years. Mm -hmm. And when I did hear those deep cuts by the Stones... When you get sticky fingers mm. and you dig into those cuts and then you hear, I got the blues late at night, all of a sudden I'm back in that car. Yeah. You know, I'm back there. I can see the, the dashboard lights. I'm just sitting there. I, I just smell the smoke. <laughs> well, and and that's, that's the great thing about music. That's one of the things I love about music is music can take you right back.
you know, I was the oldest kid. There was a, a gap there where I, I didn't have a good father figure. My mom is raising me, and I'm with my grandmother. I was really around women a lot. They would tell me, don't ever do this when you're a man. Yeah. You know, and I would hear them talking about men. Right. And I didn't want to be like that because I love my mom. I love my grandmother. You know? Right, yeah. You would see the things that women like according to TV and what you'd see back then. And so, you know, you would do something like pull a flower out of the yard and give it to your grandmother. She'd get teary-eyed and hug you and tell you how great you are. And you're like, that's the thing to do. And even when I was like five years old, I had a girlfriend and her name was Bernadette. And she made me want to be a pop star because Donny Osmond. We, would, we were listening to Donny Osmond records, and she could have played anything, and I would listen. These songs about how we shouldn't be alone, puppy love, it was like these songs were like talking to us, you know? <laughs> I have a good story that I will tell in future podcasts. Okay. It needs its own thing. So one of the other things I noticed back then, AM radio, you would hear these songs. And if you're paying attention to the lyrics, hmm. you're sitting in the backseat of the car, you know, this is playing. You don't have an iPad. You don't have anything. You're right. like either staring at the floorboards maybe drawing or something and this music's being played and you start listening to the lyrics because it's kind of telling a story right and then you're like man i don't know that i ever want to fall in love <laughs> right yeah. it sounds really bad well yeah some of the greatest songs in the world were made about the, the horrendous pain of falling in love yeah <laughs> yeah that's great art you'd have like the carpenters She especially, what an amazing voice. Amazing voice on her, but the songs are, are just so syrupy. And that's the thing I could never really get past with the Carpenters. But there were all these songs, and they were brutally sad. I'm all by myself. You'd see Alec McBeal, that was a show on yeah, in the 80s or 90s. Early 90s, yeah. Yeah. And she would like be singing the song, like crying in her bedroom. Yeah. And it's like, I can kind of identify with that. Not necessarily these songs. Right. But, you know, when you listen to the lyrics, this is a song by Brett. And he goes and finds his girlfriend's diary, which I guess he shouldn't have looked at. Right. And he sees that she says... I'm not in love with this guy. He's not my great love. You're kind of like, damn, that's harsh. Yeah, yeah. Brett's another. Uh, Brett is actually in that same category as the Carpenters for me. Yes. Really good songs, really well executed songs, but just so much sap that it, it just curdles my mill. Well, and this is this is where I'm kind of like baffled or interested in why do I accept that now. I sure as hell didn't before. Right. As far as the cheese fact. Yeah. I can go and I have made playlists of this stuff 
Mm -hmm. and just played it at night when I was in the house. Yeah. And it also, in the 70s, I think they used a lot of reverb. I heard a lot of these songs at night, Mm -hmm. and I identify with these, like, sad, heavily reverbed songs with these, you know, they do have really good singing, even if it's schmaltzy. And it's mostly the background stuff that makes it schmaltzy. Schmaltzy is a perfect word for that. Yeah. But for some reason, I I like it, you know? It doesn't bother me. We've only just begun to leave White lace and promises A kiss for luck and we're on And then the other thing was how many songs were literally about suicide. And I think that that idealized suicide kind of planted itself in a generation of kids who heard this growing up. Right. Because there wasn't much of that talk before the 70s. First of all, if you committed suicide, you were weak. There was not much empathy. You kept that stuff to yourself. That wasn't something that you could talk about. Just because music, you know, music reached this point where there was like this brutal introspection going on, that that was always taking place in different art forms. Right. You, you look at uh, like some of the um, like the the beat literature of like the the fifties and stuff like that. Yes. All the same stuff. Brutal introspection. I mean, yes. it wasn't in music, but it was the same idea. I, absolutely. They would not listen. They're not listening still. Perhaps they never. County. And I tried the moon. I'm searching in the sun for another. Oh, 
country music, the times, the weird cartoons, the sappy ballads, right. the suicide songs, all will come to a pinpoint of at least my generation, and that I wasn't the only one who felt this way about these things, or heard them and planted the memory somewhere.
This has been produced by Donnie Shattuck.